Welcome to Lamb of God Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. A little bit, what little education he had in Britain. He had learned some Latin, and then he had been taken to Ireland, and he had to learn Irish, and then he lived some on the continent too. So not any one language was he proficient in. And he wrote a book called Confession, not Confessions like Augustine, but Confession. And the Latin is very choppy. It's very difficult for scholars to be able to follow because he just didn't know it that well because he wasn't educated because the years that he would have gone to school are the years he was a slave. Even though his, his uh, father was a priest and his grandfather a deacon in the church in Western Britain, he did not think much of it. But in those lonely days and nights of being in captivity as a slave, things began to change, and the Lord began to reach out to him. In fact, one of the two greatest needs that he had as a slave was he had to deal with hunger and nakedness. They didn't value his life or value him as a person, and he only got cast off food and cast off clothes. And one of the things that he began to learn was that being out there isolated in the middle of nowhere would have been defeating and depressing and felt hopeless in the modern day. There would have been hints, oh, just commit suicide because life's not worth it. But in the midst of this, this is what he found. Tending my flocks was my daily work, and then I learned that I must pray constantly during the daylight hours. The love of God and the fear of him surrounded me more and more, and my faith grew, and the spirit was roused. So that one day I would say as many as a hundred prayers, and after dark nearly as many again. While I remained in the woods or on the mountain, I would wake and pray before daybreak, through the snow, the frost, the rain. Nor was any sluggishness in me, because then the spirit within me was ardent. God in his sovereignty met him in this place and actually saved his life by using these difficult circumstances. The very things we think are terrible and awful, and defeated that God has forgotten us, were the very things that God used to bring Patrick to saving faith and to bring him into intimacy with him. And you know that verse, uh, uh, let's turn to uh, Genesis 45, about the famous Joseph verse, when he's taken captive as a slave, and he was uh, falsely accused of rape. And he was put in prison, and then he was raised up by the Lord. And even though people forgot the interpretations of the dreams that he had done, how did he, he saw and recognized his own brothers, and they didn't recognize him when they came to Egypt for food? And what was Joseph's response to all this trial and all this difficulty, all this pain, all this mistreatment? This would be Genesis 45, 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives with great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Catch that phrase. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. 
looks like they did. They're the one who sold them. In the ancient world, when someone wronged you, you retaliated and killed them. That's why he's constantly telling to him, don't be distressed. I'm not going to take this out on you because God had a bigger plan. So he's what? Free from bitterness. He's free from anger. He's supposed to be thankful to the Lord that the Lord is working in circum difficult circumstances in his life. And he's seeing that there's a bigger picture in God's sovereign purposes in his life. And that's what Patrick began to understand as being a slave that the Lord was working in his life. Now, he was a slave for six years. And in the middle of the night, one night, as he was praying, a voice came to him as clear as a human voice and said, your hungers are rewarded. You're going home. Your hungers are rewarded. You are going home. And that really brings us back to something else. Hebrews 11, 6. Hebrews 11, 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because he who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, some of you right now who are praying and you're seeking the Lord and your answer to your prayer has been delayed and it's causing you to question and doubt. And the Lord wants you to know that if you continue to trust in him, he will reward your faith and come through with that answered prayer. Part of faith is believing that the Lord does respond. And the Lord saw Patrick's faithfulness and his love for him out in the middle of nowhere, 200 miles deep into Ireland, the west coast, the west side of Ireland, saw this isolated individual and said, I'm going to answer your prayers. I'm going to deliver you. You're going home. So Patrick got up, startled. The voice said, look, your ship is ready. Okay, you're 200 miles on the west side of Ireland. So you need to get a ship to cross the Irish Sea to get back to the west side of England, which is somewhat kind of where Wales would be. So you're going to walk 200 miles to get to the ship that is ready. Okay. Now, everyone knows by the way you're dressed and the way you look that you're a slave of someone's. So the chances are that just like the old Underground Railroad in the Old South and the pre, uh, the, before the Civil War, trying to get far was not easy to do. Trying to get into the Underground Railroad and get out was not an easy process. But he took off. He walked 200 miles through territory that he had never come before without ever being stopped or followed by anybody. And he goes, reaches a southern inlet, which we think now is Wexford in Ireland, where he saw a ship. As he tramped toward his destiny, his faith was that he was under God's protection, must have grown and grown as he walked. Because it's almost virtually impossible for a fugitive slave to walk that far and not be detected. He said, he said in his book, I came in God's strength and had nothing to fear. He gets to the coast and there's a ship sitting there. That's disputed in which manuscripts what they were 
transporting. Some of the manuscripts say that he was, they were transporting these special Irish dogs that British people liked, and they were going to sell them over in Britain. Some say, some say just cargo. But when he first walks up, they know what he wants, that he's a slave and he's fleeing. And they turn him down at first. Now, what would you think if you had walked 200 miles to get to the ship that's sitting right there and they turn you down? So he walks away and he starts to pray and he's trying to discern what he needs to do. He had actually offered them some money where he got it. We do not know. But they, he, as he's going down the beach trying to discern what the Lord wants him to do, the guy yells at him and he says, um, uh, come quickly, they're calling you. Well, the sailors had a change of heart toward him and put him on the, on the boat and he went home. He went home to, uh, uh, to, with the guys on the ship. But I say, I say home belatedly. They, the ship went first to the coast of France, what we would call Gaul back then. They landed on the coast of France and began to walk, looking for food, looking for food to trade with and so forth. And they got there. They didn't find a single soul. They walked for two weeks and didn't find anybody. And this said, first had historians baffled. How do you walk across northern France and not find anybody? Was research has gone. Two things happened about that time. One, the German tribes across the Rhine became, were in a state of famine and crossed the Rhine into France and wiped out a large part of France and took almost every bit of animals or food that there was. Almost like locusts just walked across it and destroyed almost everything. Also about that time in history, we know there was a great plague that wiped out a large part of Europe. So as they were walking these miles looking around, you think, now, Lord, you delivered me from slavery. We're now in France, but there's nothing to eat. And in fact, the captain confronts him and says, how could you... Believe in this God that you've told us about. And look at us. Do we want to starve out in the middle of nowhere? The Lord spoke to him during that time. And he told the captain, he said, I quote, From the bottom of your heart, turn trustingly to the Lord my God, for nothing is impossible to him. Today he will send you food for your journey until you are filled, for he has an abundance of everywhere. And about that moment, after they bowed their heads in prayer, they looked up and a herd of pigs came over the hill. This is, isn't this more interesting than shamrocks and green beer and, you know, turning, uh, wearing leprechaun hats. <laughs> okay. So it takes him a few more years, but at last he goes home to Britain, welcomed as a son by his parents. They beg him not to go off anywhere. They, um, he has no desire to be a carefree Roman British citizen, but now he's hardened physically. He lives in his parents' house, and he hears this voice of the Lord. I can't pronounce it in Latin, but the voice basically said in English, the voice of the Irish is calling you. He sees and hears this voice that says, we beg you to come and walk among us one more. 
Through the night, he cannot put the Irish out of his mind. The visions increase. Christ begs to him. He gave his life for you. He it is who speaks within you. Now, how would you feel? If you had been a slave for six years, treated harshly, come to almost to the end of your life, and God calls you back to the very place where you were a slave, to an Irish land that did not know the gospel, that was full of these pagan chieftains, and the Lord calls you back. So what he did first is he went to a school in France, in a little town called Larens, try to study for what it meant to be a priest. And it was very difficult because he had no formal training. We can't imagine how difficult it was. His Latin's bad, his, his uh, British Gaelic's bad, his Irish is bad. It's just, I can't imagine how hard that would have been. Okay. But he walks through that and they commissioned him to be the first missionary bishop that we know of in history. He... Um, returns to Ireland and faces a lot of opposition. But through the Lord's power and mercy, he begins to see people's life change and people begin to come to Christ. And he actually begins to establish bishops in different places. I'll show you this little map. You can see it from here. This is a map, little map of Ireland during the time of Patrick. Through his ministry, all the little provinces that you see toward the top, with the exception of the one on the bottom, all come to Christ. And he establishes bishops in all the little dot towns you see there. I can't pronounce them because they're Irish Gaelic. And the Lord uses him and raises him up. He leads people to Christ and churches are established. Bishops are put in place and Ireland begins to come to Christ. He's, he starts this mission, we think he's about 47 years old when he starts doing this work of sharing Christ with the Irish. There was just a little problem, though. Roman British, you know, remember Hadrian's Wall and half of Britain is taken over by the Romans and half of it below the Hadrian's Wall is uh, led by the, the uh, Romans and they build a wall called Hadrian's Wall to keep the Scottish picks out and because they can't ever conquer Scotland. And so the, the lower half of England is heavily Roman influenced. Okay. The Roman British Christians didn't believe that Irish could be Christians because they weren't Roman. You follow the logic? Okay. I, a Roman... British Christians didn't believe Irish people could be Christian because they were uncouth, uncivilized, barbarian Irishmen. In other words, they, their Christianity had been influenced by their racism. And so they are sending pirates over to Ireland and attempting to capture Irish people and make them into slaves. So... Patrick speaks out, patricide, fratricide, ravening wolves, eating up the people of the Lord as if it were bread. I beseech you earnestly, is it not to right to pay court to such men, nor to take food and drink in their company? Nor is it right to accept their alms until they, 
until they by doing strict penance with shedding of tears make amends before God and free the servants of God and the baptized handmaids of Christ for whom he is crucified and died. He's telling the British king, chieftain, you're capturing believers. They were baptized with you. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't treat them this way. What he begins to do is maneuver with the other, begin to work and write letters to the other British bishops, begin to withdraw from this king and cut him off until he stops this practice of slavery. Now think about it. Patrick's the first person outside of the letter to Philemon and Paul's writings is the first person that's ever speaking out that slavery is sin. In the ancient world, it was taken for granted. He wants the British bishops to understand that these people have been baptized in Christ's name and whether they're British or not, or Roman or not, they're still believers in them and we're one body. That's the same argument Paul makes in the letter to Philemon. Philemon is the slaveholder, Onesimus is the slave. Paul is sending him back to make amends because he's left he left and fled. He probably stole something. But in that midst of that time, Onesimus came to Christ through Paul's ministry. Now, Onesimus is he's sending Onesimus back to make restitution and make things right. But he's telling Philemon to treat him as a fellow brother in Christ. You can't hold another brother. In, if, a bro, if someone's a brother in Christ, you can't hold them as a slave because they're equal with you. That's how Paul is undermining slavery. By changing the way we look at the people. You realize that Southern plantation owners often would not let missionaries share with the gospel with African-American slaves, because if they did, they would be brothers in Christ and they could no longer treat them that way. So they denied them the gospel. And Patrick is saying, you can't treat your fellow brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ this way. They're not slaves. They're your brothers and sisters. Again, isn't that more interesting? They're wearing green hats and marching up and down. We think that he's the first, according to this author, he's the first human being in the history of the world to speak out unequivocally against slavery. After Paul. So what was the deal for Patrick? Why would you go through all this? You go back to almost the exact place where you were slave and you share the gospel among some of the same people who held you captive. Why would you do such a thing? Because you're in love with Jesus. Because you know, you know what he's done in your heart to set you free. You know he's supreme and you love him with all your heart because he has forgiven you and you want the other people to know the forgiveness that you've enjoyed in Christ. Let's turn with me to Colossians. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that there was a lady named uh, Jen um, Pollock and all of a sudden her last name, Mikhail, I think wrote an article for Christianity Today where she said the greatest problems in our culture 
right now is not the drug use is a problem. It's not the greatest problem. Drug addiction is a problem. It's not the greatest problem. Their immorality is a problem. It's not the greatest problem. And the greatest problem and in our culture is our desire for a life of ease. And when Christ calls us and he bids us to come and follow him, are we willing to give up that thing that we want most value, this culture most values, which is a life of ease? That's really the motivating factor behind abortion. That's a motivating factor about a lot of decisions, moral decisions that our culture is making because we want our life to be easy. And I don't get the whole thing. It's, it still staggers my mind, this whole thing with the um, Hollywood actors, actresses, and Hollywood people, as much as 30 or 40 people coordinating together to be able to give bribes to certain people at major Ivy League schools to get their kids in admitted, having they hired a guy to take their SATs for them, the SATs for them, he averaged a score of 34. And so they were they worked to be able to give him the right identities so he could go in and take their kids' SATs for them. Two girls got admitted to Yale on a lacrosse scholarship as they bribed the lacrosse coach to make sure their kids would be able to be admitted to Yale. The problem is their kids had never played lacrosse in their life, but made the team because the coach had been bribed with millions of dollars. So far, they think as much as $30 million has been involved in the bribing of different officials, coaches, and um, testers to be able to get certain privileged kids, school, uh, privileged kids into certain privileged schools. Okay, we want an appearance of having worked, but we want the life of ease. I read the, yesterday where Lori Lofton's daughter never attended class. She just went right through it. A life of ease will make us all, this, this hunger for a life of ease will make us all in this culture do incredible things. Okay. So we have to watch that influence in our own hearts. We might not ever do something like these celebrities did. We would ever have the money to make a bribe that big. But there can be temptations in our flesh to yearn for a life of ease. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ bids us come, he bids us to come and die. To come and die to ourselves and to live unto him and to live for him. Why do we do this? Because in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, where the things on earth are things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God himself says Christ is first, he is supreme over all things, and he's worth, worthy to live for, to come and die for, to give up a life of ease for, to be a missionary for, to go at the age of 47 and evangelize the Irish for. Now we don't know for sure whether he wrote this, and, and uh, y'all have that on the computer? There's a, um, a, a poem that was, or a song you could say, that was written, they think was written by Patrick. It's hard to confirm whether he actually wrote it or not, but I'm sure this is his spirit. 
You've probably heard it before. Sometimes it's called St. Uh, Patrick's Breastplate. You know, by the way, there's another little fact. The Roman Catholic Church never declared him a saint. We call him a saint because that's what he is, but he's not officially a saint. That's another little fact. Okay. He wrote a little thing that we call it uh, St. Patrick's Breastplate. It comes from a Latin word, lorica, which means prayer. Okay. And we're just going to, uh, I want us to read just part of it. And this is the very tail end of this thing, but it really captures what Patrick's heart was. Okay. Let's say it together. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. I don't know of a better goal than that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of Patrick, what you did in him, and how you're still working this way, and you're still working um, miracles, you're still guiding by your voice, and you're still revealing yourself as powerful in our lives. Pray, Lord, work in our lives. Help us to see Christ as our all in everything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Hope to see you next time.